Hi there, my name is Alistair Madden and you're listening to Season 4, Episode 7 of the Road to Nowhere European Football Podcast. In this episode, we discussed Leon's youthful silver linings, the moody case of Joao Felix, Fiorentina's contrasting fortunes domestically and in Europe, and Schalke's deep-rooted shortcomings. We looked at all of those topics and so much more in our usual way. Do check out the show notes for a comprehensive running order of what we discussed and when. This episode is, of course, produced in partnership with Freelance Football Ops. If any of our listeners are freelancing in football, you may be interested in signing up to Freelance Football Ops' subscription-based newsletter. They find jobs which cover writing, design, video, audio, and generally anything in football media every week. For more info, visit freelancefootballops.com or follow at FFOps on Twitter. Right, on now with the episode. Hopefully you're all staying safe. Hopefully you're all staying well. Thanks, as always, for your continued support. If you do enjoy what we do, please do consider leaving us a rating. Please do consider leaving us a review. Doing so would really help us to grow the podcast even more and we would all really appreciate it. Enjoy the episode. Later in this episode, we will dial in the excellent Alex Collins from South Africa. He's going to talk to us all about Leon. He's going to talk to us all about what's going on at the Grupama Stadium. And all of that has got me thinking about where I would want to play if I had been good enough to play as a professional football player. I'll say what my dream career would be shortly, but Barlow, I'm going to put you on the spot. I only told you we were going to do this moments before we came on air. So, Barlow, what would be your dream career if you were to make it as a professional football player? Uh, You've caught me on the hop a wee bit, Ali. So, I don't know if I want to submit this as my final answer, but off the top of my head, I would quite like to start at my hometown club of Hearts. Maybe maybe I should do a season or two at Union Berlin. They are a fashionable club right now. It sounds pretty fun. The draws of Napoli are pretty hard to resist as well. I think the San Paolo would be a nice place to ply your trade. Plenty of love there. Maybe break a few hearts. Mm -hmm. I'll eventually end up at Barcelona, as I'm sure uh, many of our listeners might have predicted. You know where I want to finish my career? I want to finish my career at the Stadio Monumental at River Plate. I think it would be terrific. As as I play out my sort of heydays, I'm thinking a nice sort of number 10 in Gantry role. Just Mm. as many passes. Um, but yeah, this is a world in which I have yeah plenty more ability and I'm not a slightly aggressive and physical left back. Beautiful. Oh, I've seen <laughs> I've seen your defending and it is Benucci-esque, shall we say. <laughs> uh but yeah, I think I think personally I would I would quite like to start out at Kilmarnock, come through the youth ranks there, emerge as one of the brightest young goalkeepers in Scotland, and then perhaps move across predictably to Strasbourg play for a few years there, then take in some time at Lyon. Brilliant city, fantastic fans, fantastic stadium. 
And then perhaps head across to Freiburg, another brilliant place, not too far from Strasbourg. And then all being well, if Feyenoord would want to take me, I'd be more than happy to head up to De Kuyp, although I'm not sure if they'd be playing in De Kuyp by that time. But anyway, uh, play a few years there and then head across to play some games for LA Galaxy. Uh, a, a lovely part of the world over there, lovely weather as well. And then when I'm coming towards the end of my playing career, I would return to the Theatre of Pies, Kilmarnock's home stadium, Rugby Park, to play the remainder of my career before seamlessly transitioning into a role as the manager of Kilmarnock, guiding them to Europe, and this time around, hopefully they wouldn't succumb to an embarrassing defeat against Koniski Nomad. Not that I've thought about that at all, but I feel like this is almost up there with when the Euro Millions come round and there's a huge jackpot. You think, what on earth would I do if I were to win that? Um, well, yeah, this is probably on a, on a similar level of uh, not going to happen. But you never know, Paul. You, you never know. You never it, know. It does sound somewhat like you have thought about it. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> you, you, you had that answer pretty pretty well lined up. Mine was off the bat. I've planned it all out to even the last detail of where exactly I would stay in Strasbourg where I had to be on a, a league and wage. But uh, yeah, we'll, we'll move on, Paul, because it's that time of year again where we must discuss Joao Felix, the Portuguese star and the most expensive signing by a distance in Atletico Madrid's history, has spent the last month moodily looking at the pitch from the bench. There was a point last season where he was scoring freely. He looked tuned in to his team and to his manager. The only way, quite simply, looked up. Less than three months into the new season, however, how is it that he now looks closer to leaving Atleti than lifting them to new heights? Yeah, just going back to the start there, I think, they sold Antoine Griezmann for 120 million, and obviously have now bought him back, and that looks good business given they bought him back for about 20 million. But they sold him for 120 million, brought in Joao Felix, who was a teenager, who was an up and coming superstar for 129 or so. And so you look at that and you think, yeah, okay, you've swapped a player who's maybe at his peak, yeah, fair enough, but he's probably not going too far up. As it turned out, he was only going down at Barcelona. And then you bring in this new sort of precocious superstar who looks like he's going to take the the footballing world by storm. And it's just never quite worked. I mean, you could see the logic of it there, but I think the logic of the Jao Felix deal maybe makes sense for most clubs, but perhaps not not for Atleti. Because although Jao Felix is kind of prodigiously talented I think we've seen enough from him to to be convinced that the talent's there it's not it's not a talent problem it's not like they've been sold they've not been missold PPI or anything like that there, there was legit a legit player in there and there is and there we may well see it but it's it's just not quite worked and, and you say about last season yeah it kind of looked like it was working we thought that finally we were going to get that Joao Felix, again, it looks like we were on the right track. He was cold in front of goal. He was playing as kind of the furthest forward man. Almost, I thought, kind of as if Luis Suarez had taken him under his wing and told him where he needs to stand to be on the end of these kind of uh, counter-attacks. And it looked kind of like it was working. But yeah, since the start of the season, since Griezmann's been bought back by Atleti and his contract issue has been resolved and he's no longer playing 30 minutes a, a game... Michelle Felix has been a non-factor. He's played 51 minutes in the sort of seven matches since the international break, which is startling, to be honest. He's been benched. 
He's, I think, one the most high-profile incident was against Club Bruges, Club Brugge, when they were in need of a goal. It was at home, and they used their final sub. Axel Witzel comes on instead of Jao Felix, and and yeah, Felix throws his bib to the ground, storms off onto the bench, and and yeah, he's just he, he looks like he's unhappy. There's no sort of love from Simeone for a player that he's now had for three and a bit years. Simeone, there's been rumours that he wants to leave on the back of this. It's been, if Simeone remains the manager, I've got to go. That's the rumour. It makes sense based on what we've seen so far. Simeone has said that those who deserve it, those who perform in training will play. Currently, that doesn't appear to be Joao Felix, but I think more on the pitch, you, there's no real reason to to sort of give him a chance, to be honest. I mean, he's got three assists this season, this season but that occurred in the first game of the season and since then he's not provided a goal or an assist he's been moody when he comes on he's been reluctant to run in the same manner that the likes of Angel Correa has and Simeone without naming him basically said look at Correa look what he does look how frustrated he is not playing but he still comes on he commits to everything and he gives every single thing that he has in those minutes that he has and that's why he's now playing ahead of Joel Felix even if it's off the bench and uh and yeah, this is, it's just a, a split that it's kind of been active and it's kind of been volcanic. It's been sort of active at points and it settles down. It looks like it's dormant. It looks like things are maybe going to work out. Like Joao Felix has maybe found a role in the Simeone side that, to be honest, I mean, it's been a side that hasn't necessarily had a settled team or a settled system with the exception of that kind of six to nine months where they won the title a couple of years back and and so in that context, it is also difficult for the young player to adapt. It's difficult for him to find his kind of groove. But Simeone doesn't seem to have a role in his side currently for him. He doesn't seem to want to base the side around Joao Felix. I don't think he he sees himself getting enough, I don't know if attention is the right word, but he doesn't see himself being played to enough. I think if you see yourself as that prodigious talent, you see yourself as... And let's not forget, he was the heir to kind of Cristiano Ronaldo in the sense that people thought he was the next big Portuguese talent. If that's the way you're looking at yourself from, from his point of view, then he wants to be playing with a striker and he, him to be the sort of star man. And instead, it's Antoine Griezmann and for all the opposite reasons, because Griezmann works hard, Griezmann defends, he's selfless, he does everything that Simeone asks of him. And so, yeah, he's kind of become a non-factor. And I have to say I mean, as I say, this has kind of gone in cycles beforehand and we've seen it kind of look like it's breaking down and it comes back. But now we're, yeah, it'll be four seasons after this one's done. I think we're now at the point where things are starting to break and I, I don't think that there's another season where this can go on, even if it looks like it's repaired in the summer. Maybe there does just need to be a split. It doesn't look like Simeone's going anywhere. And I think Joel Felix is maybe at the point where he's ready to to give up on this and I can kind of understand it and I think Atleti would be best served from that too because he's still very young he's, he's what 22 you can still get a lot of value for him on the market I think this is kind of a moral tale for recruitment to be honest that you need to know no matter how talented the player is and again from Atleti's point of view it makes sense to recruit sort of a young talented superstar before the big teams get to him and to develop him and turn him into your talisman but if you don't have a place for them in Simeone's sight, as has happened with plenty of other players for Atleti, and although Thomas Lamar has 
had a good season and a title winning season as well and has kind of found a place he didn't have a defined role for Lamar for so many years and he cost 60 70 million as well so I think it's a tale about Atleti's recruitment not quite matching up to what their manager wants what their manager needs and, and what he's going to use and ultimately all it's done is end up harming both sides of the equation here Simeone I mean I talked about his def- lack of defenders that they've recruited in the summer as well and you look at the squad it's unbalanced and there's issues to be to be addressed there and I think it Andrea Berta, sporting director, they need to work in tandem. And I think it's, as I say, it's a model tale or a, a fable almost for, for every other club to know that if you have a manager that's sticking around long-term, if you have a system and a set of sort of ideals, then you need to work out exactly where you're spending your money and how that fits into it. Absolutely, Paul. Since that international break you reference, Real Valladolid have enjoyed something of a resurgence Aside, many have tipped to go down with one of the weakest squads in La Liga. The 10 points they have gathered in five games have taken them to 11th place. Owner Ronaldo Nazario has spoken of how he struggled with the mental pressure as a player in his recent documentary. And the manager he employs would have served him more than well at the time, Barlow. Yeah, it's been an incredible kind of revival from Valladolid since since that international break. And it's a team that's it's pretty short on quality. Let's let's not beat about the bush. But as you say, the results have been good since the international break. They beat Real Sociedad at the weekend. They ended an eight-game winning run from La Real, which is again that's a team that was in the top four. Um and I think the example that stands out most to me and uh, Tom Harris is my colleague at La Liga Lowdown has written a good piece on the substack there. And I've written a piece about sort of uh, Vidalid just after the international break too. And the, the thing that stood out to me was that he was giving this interview to Radio Marca and he was talking about um, Sean Weissman, who's their kind of star striker from the Segunda. He scored about 20 goals last season and, and very much, looked as if he would be the kind of key factors to whether they stay up. If he can score the goals, then Vitaly would have a chance. Sean Weissman was there in the season that they got relegated in the in the, in the sort of um, in Segunda. He's got a goal ratio of about 1.62 games it takes him to score a goal. He's, he's pretty effective. He's pretty clinical. In the top division, it's one every 5.71 games, which tells you that Certainly at this point or in this vital lead system, he's struggling to make the make the grades. But he spends about five minutes of that Radio Marca interview talking about how great Sean Weisman is, how he's the man with the goal. He's the man that um, is different for us. And he's just so effective. As soon as he gets a sniff, he scores. And for us, it's just about providing him with opportunities, bigging him up so much on this in this radio interview. I'd say roughly about a quarter of it was spent him just praising him to the hilt. And then the week after, at the weekend, so that was on the Thursday, he drops him for Sergio Leon, who scored less goals than Sean Weissman in the last four years. As like, well, Weissman scored more goals in Segunda last season than Sergio Leon had in the last four years. Since then, it's five and five for Sergio Leon, who's hit a purple patch of form for a purple team, and it's it's just a testament to Pachetta's approach and the way that he sets his players up to go out there they're so relentless even though they don't have that quality and 
you're casting your mind back quite a bit. I won't be offended if um, listeners don't remember Huesca and the great Huescape that never that never happened. But uh, but Pacheta was in charge of that. He was the the man behind that, and he took a team that was dead then, nearly got them to survival. This is a team that again, similarly to Huesca, is a little bit short on quality, but they believe so much in themselves and they give the other team hell to put it pretty lightly they go at them repeatedly relentlessly even if they're not winning they don't seem to lose belief and, and i'd advise people to go and watch a bit of kike perez who's been a very good midfielder he seems to be one of those midfielders who can just once a game he'll find that space in between the the midfield and defense and then pick out a pass that will lead to a chance he's, he's very been very good but listening to pachetta is it's it's almost believing in itself because I I was listening to a press conference with him the other day and but I was kind of doing other stuff as I was going along and I ended up just kind of stopping and listening to him because he's so enthralling he's so captivating he almost it's almost Obama like in the way he not quite sort of in the same style but in the sense that you stop what you're doing you listen because he has you kind of on edge and he'll give you a dramatic pause and you're you're hanging on it so so yeah I think if you've got that kind of manager behind you you got that motivation, you got that sort of intense character, you know, the sort of uh, thing of oh, somebody's been knocked out, tell him he's Pele and send him back out there. It's almost as if Pachetta believes so much in his team that they all go out there thinking they're Pele. They all go out there thinking they're much better than they are almost uh, just because of that sort of positive attitude, that um, consistency of message, the the way he rates is, is incredible. So it'll still be difficult for them because they're, I mean, as I say, they're a little bit short on quality for me and there'll be a lot of teams fighting it out at the bottom of the table, but Pacheta himself, he gives them a chance. Glorious Barlow particularly enjoyed the purple patch for a purple team there. Alliteration, yeah, brilliant. Okay, okay. I think we will park our analysis of Spanish football there. We will go and fill up our water bottles. We'll take a quick break before coming back to have a look at the Bundesliga, we're going to put Schalke, miserable Schalke, under the road to nowhere microscope. We'll be right back. On to the Bundesliga and FC Schalke returned to German football's top flight after a brief one-year hiatus. However, the seven times national champions have struggled to reacclimatize to the Bundesliga, picking up just one win from their opening 10 matches. They also crashed out of the DFB Pokal with a humiliating 5-1 loss against Hoffenheim in the second round. Against that unsettling backdrop, the club took the decision last Wednesday to relieve co- head coach Frank Kramer of his duties with immediate effect. While Kramer has only been in charge of Schalke for 13 games, his dismissal still felt rather inevitable. Looking ahead, have we seen anything at all to suggest that De Koenigsblauen can turn it around and avoid a second relegation in the space of three years, Ali? Quite simply, Barlow, no. (laughs) (laughs) Although I will elaborate on that, and I think in elaborating on that brief response, I'll just explore Schalke more widely. I think it is really interesting, Barlow, when we compare and contrast Schalke's approach over the summer with that of fellow promoted side Werder Bremen. Now, on the one hand, Schalke have implemented practically wholesale changes on and off the field of play. 
most notably they appointed new manager and Frank Kramer, who of course, as you say, has now been dismissed. They brought in 18 new players and let 17 members of last season's squad leave either permanently or on loan. Perhaps the best way, Barlow, to illustrate the extent to which the playing and coaching landscapes changed at Schalke over the summer is to look at their starting 11 on the last day of last season against Nuremberg and their starting 11 on the opening day of the current campaign against FC Köln. Only two players from that game against Nuremberg survived, so to speak, and made the cut to start against Köln. Werder Bremen, on the other hand, have shown more faith in last season's promotion-winning squad, and so far that approach has paid off. They brought in a relatively modest seven new players, with nine heading out the door. So about yeah, 50%, actually less than 50% of Schalke's summer transfer activity. Moreover, nine of the players who started Werder Bremen's final game of last season against Jan Regensburg started on the opening day of the current campaign. Now, coach Oli Werner was in the dugout for both games too. So you have that consistency, you have that stability on and off the field of play. And I think, yeah, the, the two contrasting approaches really serve to illustrate just how unsettled it has been at Schalke over the summer and into the start of this new season and as we've seen that lack of stability that lack of consistency has really been to Schalke's detriment that decision to overhaul their squad looks rather unwise and for me the squad simply isn't good enough a lot of their problems stem from the inexperienced duo of Alex Crow and Tom Kraus at the base of the midfield. It does maybe seem unfair to attach a lot of Schalke's problems on those midfield two, and it's not exclusively down to those midfield two, but particularly against Hoffenheim, you could see how uncomfortable the pair were with what was being asked of them by Kramer, and the team on the whole looked brutally out of shape, very vulnerable. As a result, every time Hoffenheim got the ball, they would just waltz through the middle of Schalke's squads. And yeah, quite simply, I think those two looked out their depth or at the very least looked uncomfortable with what was being asked of them. Tellingly as well, Barlow Frank Kramer has deployed four different formations across his 13 games in charge. Now, I'm all for tactical and stylistic flexibility, but there is a fine line between said tactical flexibility and tactical incoherence. And under Kramer, Schalke displayed real signs of the latter. And all of this is unfortunate because the thing with Schalke is that they really should be challenging at the top end of the Bundesliga. We've spoken previously about the size of their fan base, about the reputation of their fan base and a few years ago, you might remember, Barlow, they overtook Dortmund to become the second-best supported club in the Bundesliga behind Bayern Munich, who I think boasts the most members of any football club in the world. I'm not sure if that's still the case, but certainly at one point that was the case. Anyway, now it, these days, uh, Schalke boasts over 160,000 members, which is a huge number. It's a massive number. And in the shape of the Veltins Arena, the club, also boasts one of the finest and most atmospheric home stadiums in Europe. You probably remember it from the 2006 World Cup. It is 
state of the art. And on its day, the atmosphere at the Belton's Arena can be really quite electric. Over and above the fan base, we've also referenced Schalke's youth academy, known as the Nappenschmeider, which has produced several proper talents since the turn of the century, most notably Manuel Neuer, Mesut Ozil, Julian Draxler, Leroy Sané and Joel Matip. I think certainly Neuer and Ozil, probably the most elite of those graduates. But you can see the calibre of the players that, historically anyway, the Youth Academy at Schalke has produced. We've also got Benedict Howardes. So when we take Howardes, Draxler, Neuer and Ozil, four products of the Youth Academy became 2014 World Cup winners with the German national team in Brazil. And also just another point to highlight how once upon a time this Youth Academy was so effective at producing top quality young players in the 2013-2014 campaign, as many as eight homegrown Schalke talents started the Champions League last 16 tie against Real Madrid. So we had Ralph Farman, Tim Hoogland, Benedict Howardes, Sead Kalasina, Can Ayan, Joe Matti, Max Meyer and Julian Draxler. That is astonishing. That's a huge number of players and something of which Schalke were quite rightly very proud. These days, however, I think we have seen a gradual decline for Schalke's Youth Academy. They still take a lot of pride in it. There's a really detailed section on their website about the spirit of the Youth Academy, about their approach to young players. So you can tell they take a lot of pride in that Youth Academy, as historically anyway they, they should do. But these days you have a couple of recent graduates. You've got Ralph Farman's in and around the first team, but you have a couple of recent graduates who are there or thereabouts, but they're not household names, they're not players who I'm sitting here thinking they're going to go on and reach the top, top level. If anything, you know, a success for those players would be to make it even at Schalke, which considering how disappointing Schalke have been recently, doesn't really say too much about their level, but we have seen this, yeah, it's, it's quite an unfortunate decline because, yeah, once upon a time, that youth academy was arguably one of the best in Europe. Historically, as well, and I feel like I'm sounding like a broken record talking about history, but anyway, historically, Schalke have been crowned champions of Germany seven times, as you mentioned, Barlow. They've lifted the German Cup on five occasions, and let's not forget, they won the UEFA Cup in 1997 with that memorable 2-0 aggregate win over Inter. I say memorable, I was a year old at that time, so I don't personally remember it, but I'm sure for Schalke fans and for football purists a little bit older, than you a little bit older than me, they'll no doubt remember that UEFA Cup win for Schalke in 1997. But, and we do have to say this, the sizable and passionate support, the erstwhile prestigious youth academy, the history, the tradition, all of that counts for nothing when a club quite simply does not have the present day structures in place to ensure sustainable success on and off the park at the top level. Plenty of ostensibly smaller clubs have shown a willingness to innovate, a willingness to develop, and Schalke have been left quite ruthlessly behind Barlow. Now, we previously mentioned the need for a root and branch review at the club. I think that was a couple of years ago when we were speaking about Schalke when they went through about five or six managers and had as many managers as points at one point in that dreadful Bundesliga campaign. 
that arguably remains the case, i.e. there's this pressing need for a root and branch review at the club. The Bundesliga, in my opinion, is a better place with a thriving Schalke, but based on their current direction and speed of travel, I still think we're a long way away from that barrel. Okay, we'll conclude our analysis of Schalke there. It's all looking rather gloomy in Gelsenkirchen. We're going to take a quick break before coming back to look at another club which is in a relatively difficult place. We're going to speak to the excellent Alex Collings all about Leon. We'll be right back. In France, it was beginning to feel like a case of when rather than if Leon would sack struggling coach Peter Bosch. It was therefore to nobody's great surprise when the club announced it had parted ways with the former Dortmund boss in the aftermath of their draw with Toulouse on match day 10. In a decidedly eyebrow-raising move, the seven times champions of France have replaced Bosch with former national team manager Laurent Blanc. Now, the question that begs to be asked when we take the customary road to nowhere step back is just where are we on at as a club right now? And to answer that question, I'm delighted to be joined by the excellent Alex Collings. Alex, it's great to have you on. Before we unpack Leon's existentialism, how would you introduce Uh yourself to any listeners of the podcast who maybe aren't too familiar with your work? Uh, hi, so I'm Alex. I've worked as a scout before. I've done some content for the likes of Scouted and Football Per 90. Uh, right now, though, I've kind of take, taken a step back from all of that just to get this current degree that I'm working on back home out the way. But I'm still doing an Arsenal podcast called the Arsenal Potshot Pod. Mm-hmm. Um, so alongside Lyon, that's my other club. Those are my two interests or football focus, if you want to call that. Um, just following both of those clubs alongside Lyon in general youth football, and then some of the smaller leagues in Europe, which have unfortunately taken a bit of a backseat over the past year because of said degree. So yeah, that that is me. Yeah, good stuff. Good stuff. Well, thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule, no doubt, uh, what with your <laughs> studies, to talk to us all about a club, which, yeah, probably aren't in the best place right now. So Alex, how do we go about answering that question? Where are we on at as a club right now? So funny, just before I get to that with you, uh, I remember we were actually on a pod together just before Bosch got sacked, the Champions mm-hmm. pod. Yeah. And I remember saying in that pod that it was likely he'd go before the podcast was actually published and that he'd be replaced by Laurent Blanc. Not that that's a super like psychic answer. Laurent Blanc's probably be my default. I would answer <laughs> would have given for who'd replace Bosch at any point of his tenure, whether it was one month in or when he left now so if that gives you a nice snapshot before we get into the nitty-gritty mm-hmm. just how like predictable we are as a club at this point so yeah to answer your club um answer your question right off the bat about where we are i'd say it's a worrying spot um and unfortunately not one where i feel it's easy or likely for us to get out anytime soon i'm not sure if that's more to do with the fact that i don't have a lot of faith in the leadership of the club turning it around rather than there are deep set things that are hard to change so it's a broad question, I think, thinking about where we are, and it's down to what I call an internal malaise, structurally and in terms of the direction of the club. That's 
that's been the case pretty much almost as long as I've been a fan. So I've been following the club and been a supporter since around 2015-ish. Um, and the thing about this internal Malaysia is it's, maybe I'm being harsh with the wording, but it's it's a relative thing in, in comparison to the improvement, modernization, advancement of football over the last decade. And in particular, other French clubs, like, and even more particularly then, like over the last three years that we've seen with other French clubs, while Lyon kind of remains very much a relic of like the 2000s, early 2010s in terms of like how the club operates and what it is at executive level. And basically over time, this is fed into every area of the club. And it's not been a quick fall at all. It's something that's only really starting to catch up with us over the last couple of years because we were so far, so far ahead. I mean, obviously we had those seven titles in a row, but even when PSG came up, we still had very, very strong squads relative to the rest of the league, right? But yeah, for the sake of not making this an hour-long segment, I'm going to probably trace us back to, <laughs> yeah, Junior coming in as a director of football uh, back in 2019. I'm going to kind of look at, because I think that's a very telling, for, for me at least, his stint as director of football for us is very telling of like where the club is at and crucially like why it's not a good thing, like just how everything kind of unfolded and how that, what that says about us looking forward at, at, at an executive level. So yeah, he came in 2019, uh, came in with a lot of ideas and intentions about modernizing the club. Um, I'm told to be fair, I've, I've spoken about how with this relic of all, but we have been a long time user of analytics um, as a club. That's my understanding. But he wanted to revamp that. And crucially, he was someone who wasn't really constrained by like the insular nature of French football, which has been a thing. And you're a Strasbourg fan. You'll know that that's kind of been a thing with French football, mm -hmm. more so than any of the other leagues in the 2010s, is that they were still in that like, you know, everything was French, right? And he kind of had ideas outside of that. Um, he made some notable mistakes. I was actually quite critical of Juninho when he first came in because I'm always skeptical of like, you know, this big name coming back to the club and just thinking that they're going to be your saviour. So I was I was sceptical when he came and he did make some big notice mistakes. One of them was hiring Salvino as our as our manager to to replace Bruno Genesio. Uh, and yeah, to be like, Salvino was just bad. I think he lasted, what, 15 games? I can't even remember. Some really dour football. Um, you know, like the definition of stale possession football and it just never went, it went anywhere. <clears throat> And then also the handling of the Guiri transfer, I still think was really bad. Uh, we ended up selling for really cheap. When we actually had a place in the squad to keep him, I still don't quite understand everything that happened there. Um, but yeah, to be fair, I think younger directors of football making mistakes, and often this comes in terms of undervaluing players by trying to move them on quickly or making bold moves that don't come, come off is something that's normal and something you kind of have to accept. I think looking mm -hmm. at how Eddie's kind of developed at Arsenal, my other club, is a good sort of example of that. He's made lots of mistakes, not great things, but you do get the sense that, you know, you're learning on the job and it's not an easy role. And I think it's something you have to kind of buy. And he also did some great stuff. He was key to both Paqueta and Bruno Vimarej signings. Um, and he was also he was also very desperate to bring in Roberto De Zerbi. Obviously, this is a hypothetical, but I'm pretty confident saying he would have been a, a fantastic hire for the club. This was at the time when we hired Bosch instead. Issue for him was ultimately that he lost a lot of Olis's trust after the Salvino failure, um, which led to us hiring Rudy Garcia. That was an Olis move um, as, as Salvino's replacement. Very much not Juninho's guy. And they actually hated each other like completely. I remember them having all over the press, they were always having fights about 
And it became like very this divided thing, like Kakare playing rather than Bruno Gomes rather than playing together. A lot of stuff that we don't really know, but what, what we do know for sure is that they did not like each other. And I think both both of public publicly kind of said that, right? Um, yeah, when Garcia finally left, as I said, Juninho really wanted the Zerbi, but it was a no-go for Olus purely because he didn't speak French. And that's something I'm going to get into when we speak more about Olus a bit later. Um, but you can see how already this is really constraining for a director of football. He's already now not had a role in two or not had a role in, in hiring Garcia at all and being constrained from hiring his number one guy um, and really like controlling the direction of the club. So the compromise ended up being Bosch, who spoke French because of his um, his time in France during his playing career. And to be fair, I mean, this isn't a great thing, but that was a very significant hire because that was the first non-French hire we'd had since like, I want to say 1982, something like that. <laughs> something crazy. Wow. Uh, yeah. Uh, I think so. That was really, that was, that was um, Juninho's backup. And, we, and obviously we're going to get into Bosch now. Like it didn't go well, but you can kind of see right from basically the whole way through is that Juninho ended up leaving. Um, maybe I should say he ended up leaving basically Christmas time last year, around the 30th of December, 2021, mm-hmm. I think um basically because he felt he wasn't having a role in the club and he just wanted to stay take a step back like he wasn't having the influence he had he was replaced by Bruno Sheru who I'll also get into a little bit later but it was just very much the, the hiring of Bruno Sheru I think he was like a friend of Julia's the late great Julia um who was kind of like an, in an advisory role um obviously he'd already passed one year before that I, I believe but he was in an advisory role, or someone always really trusted, and I think he hired Sheru. But Sheru came with pretty bad reputation as being lazy. Came from PSG women, and we know PSG aren't, aren't afraid to kind of slander their their employees, right? But mm-hmm. but uh, it's kind of everything's come through in terms of the reputation that Sheru's had. It hasn't he hasn't shaken it at all since coming and becoming like the new director of football, sort of guy head of recruitment. But yeah, speaking a bit more about Bosch, who just left, maybe we should get into that. Um, I was quite excited. I, I like the way Bosch plays football. I liked I liked his Ajax side. I didn't watch much of his Dortmund side, but I thought they were exciting too. And crucially, I mean, after Rudy Garcia, I was just excited for anyone who wanted to play attacking football. It's something that is very important to the people of Lyon, playing an attacking possession brand of football. That is something that Bosch offers. And I think he has... He's like this tactical fanatic in, in terms of certain things that he wants. And I think he does get teams playing really good attacking football. I think it fell apart a bit at Lyon because he was trying to work with the defense and he never really managed that, that he almost did lose a little bit of that attacking flair he got out of his teams, especially if we go back to like his Ajax side, right? Um, but yeah, the, the thing is, he's just never been a good defensive coach. He's really bad at, at handling counterattacks. Um, I, think, I think a big key point of brush over it but like it's just his handling of his wing backs he put our oh, fullbacks put so much eff- emphasis in them getting forward and then he also makes them responsible for the transitions ends up being a nightmare um it's not it must not be fun to be a to be a Lyon defender over the last couple the last years or so right um and in the end I think I was saying earlier in, in the season in the season that we were a little bit better than our results suggested but I think crucially in those final few weeks of his reign, yeah, he, he seemed to lose the squad. He lost Alex Lacazette, the you know homecoming captain, um, 
And I think it just, the results, you can see that they just dropped off after that. There was that that uh, display against Lance, which was literally the worst I've ever seen me on play. We only lost 1-0 in the end, but it was it was just the most insipid display. I can remember Lyon playing, like, probably ever, maybe. Um, yeah, so so that, that was pretty much the final chapter. Uh, he's gone. He's been replaced by Laurent Blanc, um, who actually missed missed his first game, I have to admit, because it was on the same time as Arsenal. Mm-hmm. But I think, I think that's something it says where the fan base is at, or at least where I am at, is that I don't think, I can't imagine a situation where a new coach is coming in and you're not interested to see what they do. But because it was Laurent Blanc and because of where the club is at the moment, like I just didn't have that that interest. I will catch them back at some point when 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 I've got this paper out the way, actually. But but yeah. Um, and I think the point for me about Laurent Blanc is I can imagine him being better. I can imagine him stabilizing the team. I, that's not hard for me to see. I, I can we've also got a lot of quality in the squad. I can see the results improving. But it's such a depressing hire because it's not he's not someone who's gonna you know push the needle. He's not someone who's going to to improve us and he's crucially he's like this harking back to to basically what we were before Juninho right and what we what we remain to be while you get clubs like Ren, Long, um, even Strasbourg your club all being a, mo- a lot more modern in their approach a lot more intelligent trying to maximize on things whereas we we don't do that and it's it's a very depressing thing to see um, so I'm quite low on on the future of the club I was kind of holding out for us to hire like a Galado or something. Didn't really ever think it was going to happen. But ultimately, even if we had hired a Galado, it's it's still something that is just papering over the cracks um, of what we're doing at executive level because there isn't the structure that actually makes for a successful football club. Um, you're, we're kind of hoping that we have guys like Bruno Gomeresh, Paqueta, Memphis before that, um, you know, now whoever like Kakare, to be able to 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 make the results good, but we don't actually have a club that that has that push forward. Um, so yeah, I think ultimately it comes down to Olus. And as I was speaking earlier, like the fact that he's still so so stuck in his ways about only hiring a French coach, a French speaking coach at least, um, hiring guys who are like friends or that he has like links with rather than people who are necessarily best for the role. It's a lot of this like old boys club, like very much not a modern football club, not a successful football club in a league where if we want to do well, we have to, we have to, I mean, I guess everyone below PSG is sort of like in this sort of fight, right. Um, mm-hmm. For second place. And it changes up a lot, but, but yeah, you can increasingly see as other clubs are getting smarter. We are, we are falling behind. Um so ultimately, I think it's been an issue I've, I've said for a couple of years now, is that when we're still going to be the same club until until Olus moves on. Um, so it's it's been a very depressing outlook I've given so far, but there are some saving graces. Um, I'll speak I'll speak about. I mean, clearly our academy is still I would say a top three in France, maybe behind Ron and Ren and mm-hmm. PSG's. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we've got a very very strong squad I mean I still think our squad is probably maybe I'm being bullish or biased but I still think it's a, probably it's a top three squad in the league we have some we have a lot of talent in there um, who I'll get into so that's obviously something that th- we can improve right and the fact is if we move on from all this there is um, 
I don't think it's it's this doom and gloom like we're struggling financially or falling apart. It's it's not something like that. It's not so dramatic. It we just need someone to actually replace all this and change all of these things up, especially before it's too late because it does feel like we're we're losing the slipping. I still feel like we're kind of a giant in French football relative to you know other teams, mm-hmm. but yeah, it does feel like we're losing that footing a little bit. Um, yeah, if I had to be speak about some of the players. Um, We've we've got lots of talented players. We 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 did recruit pretty well this this um season uh, this summer. I'll get into that a little bit, but yeah, I mean we've got guys like coming out of the academy like Shirky. Obviously, we've got Kakre, who's now one of the leaders of the team at 22, still young. Um, Awar is still around. He'll be leaving. He'll be leaving. Um, but then we've got in the back we've got Malo Gusto and probably my personal favorite Castello Yakeba. Um, they're, they're all fantastic players. Um, and all really, really talented players. I mean, if, I think if you look at Malo Gusto, he is very much a modern fullback. He he came through as a 10 through the academy till his, till his later, le- uh, later years of development. And you can really see that he's very comfortable on the ball. He's the sort of fullback that can, can dominate um, a whole flank. He's very comfortable inverting, playing centrally, combining. He's very comfortable overlapping. He's got a great delivery from a number of different areas. Um, I can also deliver off his left foot to that sort of far post, like clipped cross. Um, mm. I think he's very good one one v one. I should say he's very strong athletically, um, so he can be very good in one v one situations. He can be made to look a little bit of a fool versus the very best, even if he is very good one v one because he's so enthusiastic, and he overcommits often. It's one of my issues with him. Another issue I would say is that. He can be a little bit um, too loose in possession, almost because he's so good in possession, he doesn't really sense that danger. So he can be a bit too lax and then get caught in possession. Um, I think he almost backs himself to be able to dribble out of a situation too easily. And he's not, he doesn't have that yet. Um, Last thing, I think tracking runners. Defensively, there's still a lot of improvement in terms of decision-making. Another thing, like one thing I can say is often... He'll try run to the man on the ball rather than covering the space they're trying to go into, which is a frustrating thing. But it's stuff that can be worked on. Lukeba, on the other hand, I think he's one of the more slept-on players. Um, mm-hmm. I'm very surprised because he he fits that modern profile. He's very good on the ball. I think bar his longer range passing, he's got really nice that mid-range sort of slide pass rule, breaking breaking lines. Um, he's left-footed, which is you know all the rage um, for all the tactical coaches. Um, he's I think he, I call him a very good two-way defender. He's very good at stepping up and judging situations and being aggressive, but he's also very good at getting behind when he when he needs to and and kind of covering space. And I think that alongside his ability on the ball and being left-footed makes him a very like impressive profile. And he's also he's quite he's got a good physical frame that I think he's still growing into. So I think he's he's probably the one I'm most excited about, maybe because I always like backing the guys who are a little bit less beloved or adored, but but yeah, he's an exciting player coming through. So we've got a lot of good talent. I mean, we also signed Tete. I'm not going to get into everyone. Kumbedi as a Gusto replacement in the front. Someone I really love. Um, I watched him in the front under 17 Euros. Um, Lepanath, who I know you're a big fan of, kind of as our Kakare oh, yeah. successor. Oh, yeah. <laughs> kind of as, as our Kakare successor down the line. Um, Tete. Yeah, maybe I should speak about our recruitment. I still think we're not always that intelligent there. I think Tete is maybe an example. At least this is my my opinion but basically what what happened with Tete is obviously the whole situation with Shakhtar Ukraine Russia I think that's that's a whole issue for another pod but 
it did mean that that Shakhtar are trying to sell a lot of their, especially foreign talent, relatively cheap. And it, what basically Lyon, we had him on loan last season and we were trying to buy him permanently this season, but we were constantly low-balling, low-balling, low-balling because his contract actually ends in a year and a half time at, at Shakhtar. So kind of halfway through the season. So what we're hoping to do is buy him for the cheap well, mm. with six months left at the end of the season. So we ended up not giving in to their demands for, I think it was 50 million. Don't, I could, I could be wrong on those numbers, but it was, it was a pretty fair price for a player who's come and has been really good, but frustrating at times, but he's a good talent. And yeah, we we're kind of banking on being able to get him in six months uh, with six months left at the end of the season. But I think by that time there could be much bigger clubs interested in. So yeah, that kind of gives an insight. I think also if I look to the Lepinot, um, if I look to the Lepinot recruitment, like it wasn't necessarily led from the department. We hired someone from Cayenne who ended up suggesting we buy him. So recruitment hasn't maybe been, I think this, season, this summer has been good, but over the past few summers, in terms of something we used to be very good back in the days when we were getting Dombele and whoever to saw even, um, we're a lot less good at actually recruiting within our within within front within France um the other saving grace I think the last thing I'll hit on is I mean I hate to even call a billionaire like a saving grace but but John Texter who's who's taking still in the process of of buying the club Mm. um I think I see this as basically our big chance at seeing whether we move forward having someone actually take over from Olus what has happened is Texas basically said he's not going to try to change anything mm-hmm. um, and he's leaving all in charge. I'll be interested to see how long that lasts because if it continues to go in the way which I feel it could or, or we continue to stagnate maybe with someone like Laurent Blanc, I could see Texas moving him on and then and then yeah, we'll see what he can do. He owns or part owns four or three other clubs, will be his fourth club. He owns 40% of Crystal Palace, 90% of Botafogo, and 80% of um, RWD Molenbeek, which is a Belgian team. Um, from what I understand, both, well, Crystal Palace, I don't know how much of an influence Texas actually had, but Crystal Palace have been doing pretty well in, in recent years, and I think they've done some great deals. You know, oh, yeah. Eze, yeah. Olise, Sheikh Dekure, Edouard, I think they've done, Guhi, I can go on. <laughs> yeah. Um, Sheikh Dekure as well, a real favourite of Owen Brown, who of course appears on the Pure Football uh, podcast and writes <laughs> writes writes for the Athletic covering Celtic. Yeah, Sheikh Dakuri, one of Owen Brown's favourite players, and a player who I was lucky enough to see for Lons against Strasbourg in the flesh uh, back in Man April. Fantastic for anyway. Sorry, I've I've tracked you there, Alex. I'll, I'll no, you know, not at all. I, I could t- I could talk about Sheikh Dakuri all day. He was one of my favourite players in France. Um. I was very sad Arsenal didn't go for him. I can kind of see why we didn't mm. see how our team looks this year. But he's a player that I'm surprised went to Crystal Palace. I think he's one of those that a bigger club could have got allowed to develop for a bit. And then, you know, then he. I think he's got very good potential. So so he's mm. a great pickup for Crystal Palace. I understand I'm not at all an uh, expert on Brazilian football, but I understand Botafogo are doing well. And I understand the fans have a very good relationship with John Texter because of his sort of hands-off, I don't own the club like well I own the club but mm. I'm on charge of the club sort of role so yeah um maybe that's just me being hopeful I do prefer him to the other potential buyer which apparently Chelsea were interested in and that would have just meant that it would become some kind of feeder club right for Bully and Co um but yeah that's kind of where the club is at we're not in the best position I would say we're in a 
just like a worryingly like slow malaise. That's how I feel about the club. Um, with our saving graces being the strength of our squad, the strength of our academy, which is still one of the best run academies um, in world football in France, definitely. Mm. Um, and yeah, seeing what 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 happens when John Texter takes over. But I think as long as Olis is in charge, I just think as good as he's been, it's kind of got to the point where we, it's the end of the road for him. Absolutely, yeah. Well, perhaps with new ownership will come something more sustainable long-term. And yeah, hopefully the Youth Academy continues to produce some excellent graduates, some of whom you've mentioned in detail over the course of the last 20 or 25 minutes or so. It's flown in, Alex. It's been an absolute pleasure (laughs) to speak to you. What I would say is if you've enjoyed listening to Alex, do go and follow him over on Twitter at AlexFRCO. Do go and check out his ramblings on the Pot Shop podcast. You can find them on Twitter at Pot Shop Pod. Yeah, do do follow both of those accounts. You will not live to regret it. Alex is one of my favourite voices, the dulcet tones of <laughs> Alex. Uh, it's been fantastic speaking to you. We're going to wrap up the French section of the podcast there. We'll be back in a moment's time. Listeners were probably wondering where exactly Michael Jones has been for the majority of this episode. Well, all is about to be revealed. He was filming a giant Jimi Hendrix inflatable at work. And that is, well, that's all I know, Michael. Can you elaborate? Can you provide some context to the Jimi Hendrix inflatable moment? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would just clarify, it wasn't like in my work or in the office. It's a huge <laughs> one going over Manchester. It's part of this thing called Monsters Invasion that they do for every year in Manchester, where they have inflatable monsters and like tentacles coming out everywhere. And this one, Blue Doo Child, obviously based on Voodoo Child, famous Jimi Hendrix song. It's not based, or it doesn't look like him in the slightest, but um, it's it's on top of a building where he played one of his famous concerts in Manchester. Oh. There we are. Well, every day is a skill day, Michael. And I, I do have to say, when you said this morning that you'd be late to the recording because you were filming a Jimi Hendrix inflatable monster. Yeah, that was quite the start to my Tuesday. Anyway, let's focus now on Italian football. Last weekend was certainly a dramatic one in Italy with six of last season's top eight facing off. One of the most impressive results came in Bergamo where Lazio expertly inflicted the first defeat of the season on Atalanta, leapfrogging their hosts into third place in the process. Maurizio Sarri's Bian Choreste have been quietly going about their business this season, but are they now at a stage where we should be taking them more seriously, Michael? Yeah, absolutely. That was a Because that was a real statement victory over Atalanta, like you said, 2-0, the goals were really well taken as well. Matea Zaccagni scored the first one and then Felipe Anderson, a bit of a blast from the past, kind of showed some of his old Lazio self. Or, well, for those watching him, you know, kind of his reborn Lazio self as well as he scored a great goal on the spin from the edge of the area to secure the victory. But Lazio were dominant. They could have won by more. And 
they had a real endorsement from Giampero Gasparini, the Atalanta manager from the game. And he was saying how, you know, Maurizio Sarri's Lazio were so fluid. They were all over the pitch, players and such kind of synchronised but hard to track movements. And he said it just made it really hard for his sort of new look, resolute Atalanta to actually be resolute against. And that kind of gives us a bit of an idea into how Lazio have evolved from last season. Missed out on Champions League football in Maurizio Sarri's first season. And the big issue sort of to do with that was the defensive issues. On average per game, they were conceding their average was 1.58 goals against them per game. Uh, they'd scored 2.03 and conceded 40. I think no, the respected goals against was 48 over the whole season. You compare that to this season, and in terms of the goals they've scored, is quite similar, but their, their goals against is down to 0.45. And that is a mar- massive improvement from them, obviously, just by those numbers. And he did seem to fix the attack quite quickly last season. Obviously, they've been very blessed in having Chiro Immobile for a number of years now. He's now in the top 10 Serie A goal scorers of all time. And they're a team that have constantly outperformed their expected goals over the two seasons. And I wouldn't expect that to change so much. You know, they've scored 23 this season against an XG of 14, which, you know, looks like when we've talked about teams on the podcast previously, we've talked about those kind of statistics evening out a bit over time. Look at them last season, they scored 77 over a 55 expected goals. And I think that is to do with the quality of players. They have the lights with Immobile, there's a, a been assist. There's an assist that I'd highly recommend anybody watching from Sergei Milinkovic Savage, where he's kind of backheeled a pass on the volley from the halfway line to put Immobile through against Sampdoria about a month back, um, which just kind of symbolises this really beautiful attacking football. We're seeing them play under Maurizio Sarri now, and that kind of Sarri ball that we haven't maybe seen that much since his days at Napoli. You know, despite his perceived success at Chelsea and. Juventus but yeah like I was saying to you he, he built on this you know he's known for his 4-3-3 Sarri Ball is a 4-3-3 he very much sort of built his attacking line up last season with Pedro Chiro Mobile and Felipe Anderson being the front line with Matteo Zaccagni there to offer competition and this season the, the you know aside from sort of the goals per game in uh, well being there or thereabouts they players aside from Immobile are contributing a lot more and what we're seeing with Matteo Zaccagni is he's a player who, you know, Sarri's system does take a bit of time to acclimatise to. And his numbers, are, I think he's got three goals and four assists already so far this season, which is close to what he achieved last season. So he's already sort of up there and clearly bedding into the team a lot better. And I mean, Barlow's not here, Ali, but I mean, Milinkovic Savic so far has been phenomenal. He's only behind, well, three players. I'd like to give you the chance to have a guess at which three players you think this might be. So he's on seven assists in the top five leagues this season. Uh, there is one from the Bundesliga, one from mm. Liga, and one from the Premier League. Two are very obvious. Uh, one, well, maybe. One has to be Kevin De Bruyne, surely. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Uh, another one. Oh, and the one in the Bundesliga. Um, oh, yeah, it's not going to be Thomas Miller. I don't feel like he's providing. No, that that's the one that's not anywhere near as obvious. Anywhere but high-profile player. 
Yeah, okay. I feel like I should probably know that. Anyway, you've you've caught me cold, Michael. And there's yeah. someone, somebody from Ligan. Is it one of the Loyon boys from from Ligan? No, big no. name. Big name. Is it Mbappe or Messi or Neymar? One of those three. Messi. Messi. Yeah, Randall Cola Muani from. Oh, from I did know that. I did know that. I did know that. We love. We've been. We've been. Yeah, fully paid up members of the Rondal Colomwani hype train for quite some time on the podcast. I feel disappointed in myself. Anyway, sorry, Michael, you were elaborating on Milinkovic Savic's genius. Can you tell us some more? Yeah, exactly. And that's the kind of company that the defence has improved massively also. I mean, and again, while Sarri was kind of addressing the forwards, it was the defence that let them down last season. And one of the big additions this summer was the boyhood Lazio fan, Alessio Romagnoli, who'd been a part of a growing AC Milan team. But by the time they'd become Scudetto winners last season, he'd very much fallen down the pecking order behind Kiara Kalulu, Fikeo Tomori. And he's formed this really good partnership with Patrick, who'd kind of been the brunt of a lot of Lazio, Lazio fans' jokes over the years, over the sort of sign of the defences. Francesco Cherby moved to Inter Milan, but he seems a lot more settled with Romagnoli and the other really impressive thing about them is Manuel Lazzari and Adam Marisic, one of the problems Sarri had in his first season was these two players were the right and left wing back under the Simone Inzaghi system. He's managed over time to really sort of bed them in as fullbacks more, but still getting that attacking and defensive balance right. And if you watch the first goal against Atalanta, it comes from Lazzari bombing forwards. If you watch the second goal against Atalanta, it's Marisic going forwards as well. Yet these defensive numbers are fantastic. But what I think has actually been the biggest difference behind all this is the goalkeeping situation, which was another problem that Lassie had had for ages. They had Louis Strakosha, who was a player who at one point looked like he may go on to become one of the best goalkeepers in Europe due to loss of confidence and form. He dropped down before going to Brentford this summer. And Pepe Reina was the backup who, you know, as great a career he's had, was certainly sort of at the wrong age of 30 or might even be in 40 now. But he's been replaced by Luis Maximiliano and Ivan Providel. Now, Maximiliano was kind of brought in from Granada as the first choice goalkeeper. He's not been able, he, after a mistake and is getting sent off five minutes into his debut, Ivan Providel, who was signed from Spezia last season, has come in, who is the much lower key one, but had a you know decent form at Spezia. And this is a guy who, born to Russian, um, a Russian mother, who grew up in the same time as Lev Yashin, can find this all these this little bit. I, I read on the Athletic article, who'd also discussed Lazio's sort of defensive heroics today. He um, also grew up in the same town as Inter Milan legend and Italy legend Francesco Toldo. So, yeah, he was always going to make a pretty decent goalkeeper. But this is a guy who was playing for a team called Juve Stabia in Serie C just three years ago. And since then, he's had a great rise with Spezia. Caught Sarri's eye weirdly enough, in a 4-3 loss to Lazio last season. But he's been the rock, really, and he's been rewarded by an Italy call-up by Mancini, although that's not the hardest thing to come by, given the size of their squads in recent times. But I think it's a really exciting time for them, and you can just see there's trends of, you know, Sarri ball finally starting to click at Lazio, smart transfer business, you know. We talked about Zaccagni being slow to adjust, but really showing his class now that, I'm really excited to see how other players like Nicola Casale, Matteo Cancellieri and Marcos Antonio, who arrived from Shakhtar Donetsk with comparisons of Fred, will slowly adjust. And, you know, if you look at Fred's recent form for Manchester United, it kind of typifies a player he's taken more than enough time to adjust. But hopefully, from a Lazio perspective, 
Antonio will be slightly quicker. But yeah, bar Midland, who they've lost to in the Europa League, they've only lost to Napoli, who look like they'll be very hard to catch in the league this season. But let's see how far this Lazio team will go. They play Midland by the time the podcast goes out, so they can certainly make amends for that. But I certainly think they're going to be back in that Champions League race at the very least. And yeah, certainly really exciting times in Rome. Indeed, Michael. I don't know if I've told the listeners yet, but I'm booked up to head across to Rome for the Rome Derby in March or April. I think it's March anyway. It is marked up on the calendar. So really looking forward to that one. Hopefully that's you are still in form. Hopefully Roma are playing some good football by them as well. Yeah, a mouthwatering prospect. Okay, maybe the most dramatic result from the last match they saw Inter Milan defeat Fiorentina in a seven-goal thriller, 4-3. Coming into the season, Vincenzo Italiano was one of the most intriguing bosses in Italy after leading La Viola back into Europe. Whilst they have exceeded on that front so far, their domestic form is rather concerning as they sit 14th in Serie A. What is not going right for them in the league, Michael? Yeah, I think there's a multitude of reasons. It's been such a disappointing start. I, I'd actually say, you know, you people, Juventus have been sort of the focus of many, but I think Fiorentina have been a rut there in terms of one of the sort of most underwhelming teams so far in Serie A this season. And, you know, British viewers, Scottish viewers may have been seen their sort of convincing victories over hearts in recent weeks and think they're doing quite well. I was really hoping Barlow was here for that for a rare dig at um, hearts. Obviously, he's had to shoot off. But, you know, in the league, like you said, they've really struggled 14th in the table. They've got the fifth worst defence this season. Prior to the 4-3 loss to Inter Milan, they were up there for the third, I think they had the third worst attack, which I know is kind of using a statistic to suit an argument and whatnot but there's still signs there and you know maybe this Inter Milan one will help them going forwards and we'll kind of go on to get on to that but I think there's kind of similar interesting similarities between Vincenzo Italiano and maybe Sarri's Lazio last season you know two managers that pride their teams on a 4-3-3 they encourage fluid attacking football you know we saw that when he led Fiorentina into Europe last season Dizan Vlahovic of course sort of spearheaded that team for more than half of it until his departure at the end of January of this year to Juventus. But despite some really exciting acquisitions over the summer, you know, and that task to replace Dusan Vlahovic, which has certainly been quite a sporadic and messy one, they've it's not come together. And the sort of what was seen as this really sort of exciting, well put together, well orchestrated attack at last season and that attacking impetus is I guess looked at naive at times this season. You know, they they recently lost 4-0 to Lazio just three match days ago. And all of, if you look at the, I think it was the fourth goal in that game, and all of their goals versus Inter Milan came from the bigger teams counter-attacking them with huge overloads where they normally just had the two centre-backs trying to defend, you know, either a three or four-man attack and getting picked off so easily. Full-backs nowhere in sight, midfield nowhere in sight and yeah it kind of trying to understand it because I really thought they would be pushing for Europe in European places at this stage at the very least and would be around the top 10 but I, I guess kind of like look, delving into it a bit deeper it really strikes me as quite a bloated squad for this season and 
I, I think it does raise questions as much as I rate Italiano. He's certainly got maybe a challenge he's not faced before in the sense that, you know, he was at Spezia prior to this Fiorentina job. And I think questions are going to be asked of how he does manage a number of sort of high profile quality attacking players in a top five league for the first time, you know, regarding that man management. And I think he maybe does what's different to other managers we've seen in similar situations before where he tries to shoehorn all of his best players into a team. He certainly tries to get players put a starting 11 out at the very least that's going to suit his system more so. But that gen- generally means what he's doing is he's ro- rotating all over the pitch pretty commonly. And, you know, you start with, um, in goal, you've got Galini, who was, you know, on loan at Tottenham Hotspur uh, last season and, you know, was but was the goalkeeper for Atalanta for a long time. He's only played three games. Terracciano, Pietro Terracciano has been, you know, as a 32-year-old sort of very steady standby, has been starting more in place. The most expensive signing of last summer, Dodo, another player from Shakhtar Donetsk. We mentioned Marcus Antonio before. Obviously, a few players moving over to Serie A, given what's happened, what is happening in Ukraine. And Dodo has also been dropped recently for Lorenzo Venuti. Nikola Milenkovic, standout centre-back again. He's kind of been rotated with Igor and Luca Ranieri. And then up front, you know, they've only, they'd only scored nine goals prior to the Inter Milan match and eight goals even. And I think one of the issues that Italiano's really had is balancing maybe his two most exciting players apart from Luka Jovic, who we'll get on to, and Nicola Gonzalez, who was a star really for Stuttgart before joining Fiorentina and, you know, had a pretty productive first season also, and Jonathan Iconi, so two players you know very well, Ali. Um, of course, brought from brought in from Lille, part of that title-winning team. Both players love to sort of quit in on their left foot. And whilst Gonzalez seems to have a bit more versatility in that sense of being able to play left and right, Italiano seems very torn on trying to keep, use one or the other in that position. Gonzalez did actually pick up an injury versus Inter Milan, which may simplify his decision going forwards. But... Then it means on the other wing, you've got Christian Kouame, who's a player who was loaned out to Anderlecht last season, didn't seem part of Italiano's plans, and Ricardo Satil, who can be a very busy, productive player, but maybe lacks that quality that the likes of Gonzalez and Icone have. And he seems to sort of either rotate these players so much that I think this is one of the things that it's really made for quite a difficult start for Luka Jovic as well in the middle because I think there's different players starting almost every match in the forward areas. I think midfield for them as well in terms of sort of providing extra supply for that creativity has been an issue. Then the most creative midfielder is um, Bonaventura and I think he's kind of torn with Italiano over to whether to use him as a number eight or a number 10. Not quite sure he's sort of figured out where best to use him this season and I think that's because of those kind of attacking deficiencies in wide areas and despite this they're still flooding the box with players and you'd think that they should be scoring more goals but the quality in those parts has generally been pretty poor and it's yeah left with Italiano with a lot of work um, going forwards and I certainly think he can do turn it around he's got a gem, generally quite a favour um, favouring sort of favourable run of games before the World Cup, Spezia, Sampdoria, Salernitana and Monza 
all included, where you'd expect them to maybe pick up some points and push for mid-table by the time of the World Cup. But if they don't, then, yeah, I think more serious questions will be asked, which I really hope it doesn't come to, because I think Italiano and Fiorentina are under there, yeah, really one of the most exciting teams in the league. Absolutely, Michael. Well, that concludes our analysis of Italian football and draws to a close yet another episode of the Road to Nowhere European Football Podcast. A huge thank you to Rudy Barlow, a huge thank you to Michael Jones and a huge thank you also to Alex Collings, who of course dialed in all the way from South Africa to tell us all about Leon. All that's left for me to say now is thank you to you, the listener. Hopefully you're staying safe. Until next time, goodbye. Mm-hmm.